And so it like really crystallized that my experience was not singular, right? And that my experience was something that so many people also struggle with. And so that's where I started to sort of put together my experience, my clinical training and experience and share it with people because um, I know that I'm not the only one who struggles with these things, who struggles with feeling worthy. And I also know that life feels so much better now that I know I'm worthy. Is it perfect? No. Like, yes, I feel anxious sometimes, but am I way, way, way less anxious than I used to be? Yes. Right. Like, yes, I feel stressed sometimes. Do I have the tools and the strategies to be kind and compassionate with myself instead of beating myself up when I'm stressed? Yes. Hey guys, this is Coach K and you're listening to the Making Changes, Breaking Barriers podcast where we talk about you. This is about you, your mind, and your path. So I'm very excited as as I always am whenever we have someone on the podcast to interview. Um, But we have someone on our podcast today who I've been wanting to talk to for quite a while now. We had to go back and forth with our schedules, try and figure out a time that was going to work, but I'm so glad that she is here with us now. After following her on social media and listening to her podcast, which is called the Unconditionally Worthy Podcast, I knew she was someone who all my listeners would really love hearing from and would really love learning something from as well. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest today and tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Adia Gooden is a licensed licensed clinical psychologist who has worked with hundreds of clients to overcome mental health challenges and embrace their unconditional self-worth. Dr. Gooden has a BA from Stanford and a PhD from DePaul University. In very exciting news, Dr. Gooden has a new book being released in April, which she co-authored with Donna Baptiste, titled Promoting Black Women's Mental Health. The book celebrates the strengths and complexities of Black women in American life. So I'm very excited to pick up a copy of that when it's released. Dr. Gooden also leads a group coaching program called the Unconditionally Worthy Group Coaching Program, which we will talk more about today. And you can find the link for more info about that in the podcast description. She will actually be taking new applications for that program um, through April at this point. The program is a guided step-by-step three-month program designed to help people stop searching for their worth outside of themselves and start embracing their unconditional self-worth so that they can experience deep peace and freedom in our lives. And lastly, Dr. Adia Gooden provides free content through her Instagram page at Dr. Adia Gooden. So if you enjoy today's episode, which I'm sure you will, I would highly recommend checking her out on there. So with all that being said, hi, Adia. How are you doing today? Hi, Christina. I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. And I so appreciate you shouting out um, the different resources and programs and things that I have going on. It's good to be here. Of course. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Like I said at the beginning, I'm super excited for this. And I know that all my listeners are really going to enjoy hearing from you today. So thank you so much for taking the time. Where are you in the country right now? So I lived in Chicago. I have lived in Chicago since like August 2007. So it's been a long time. I am originally from Southern California though. So I will never, I will never not claim (laughs) Southern California as my original home. And certainly in the winter, I miss it very much. But Chicago is my current home and it's a great city. Where in Southern California are you from? I am from Pasadena. This it's just outside of LA, so just north of downtown LA. And it's where the Rose Bowl is. As a point of reference, I actually kind of grew up across the street from the Rose Bowl. I could see it from my backyard. Um, so like where the Rose Parade happens and the Rose Bowl games and all of those things, that's where I grew up. Have you been following the, like the weather at all lately? I've been hearing that they actually got a little bit of snow down there, which is so weird. Yeah, so I following it probably as closely as I should because I still have friends who live there. But I've heard about the snow, the rain. I've heard about the snow. I've heard about the blizzard warnings and uh, also the jokes on Instagram about like, oh, my God, it's raining. Right. Because that that was life in Southern California. You're used to your 70 and sunny and anything else feels like it's not supposed to be there. Yeah, we have family in uh, Ventura. And so they were texting us yesterday saying they were out driving and all of a sudden it starts snowing and just so bizarre for that to be happening at this point. But 
Um, You're obviously very used to that at this point, living in Chicago. So, yes, 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 unfortunately. (laughs) Well, let's start off by learning a little bit more about you. And I know this is a big question to start, but can you tell us a little bit about your journey from the academia world to now owning your own business? Yeah. So I'm like, where do I start this? So part of where I want to start it is actually by sharing that both of my parents are clinical psychologists. So they both have PhDs in clinical psychology, just like I do, like I followed in their path. And they also both were professors and then administrators in higher education institutions. So that definitely set the stage for me believing that academia was the way to go, right? Like that that was sort of this prized thing. And I spent a lot of time in academia, right? Like I, I went to college and then I went to went straight through to grad school and got my PhD, stressed myself out to no end. <laughs> and then sort of eventually after grad school started shifting and turning inward and finding my self-worth. Um, and then I sort of went like switched from institution academic institution to academic institution, not many, just like two. Well, well, like grad school and then two others. And I really, for a long time, felt like the epitome, right? Like the thing that I could do that would be most impressive in my career. Well, at first it was getting my PhD and then that didn't work in terms of worthiness. But then sort of after that, even after I had sort of worked on some of the worthiness things, it was still like, okay, well, I got to get a faculty appointment, right? Like I got to get this like faculty appointment, which is this prize thing, and then sort of be in an academic institution and setting that sort of, you know, people are impressed, right? Like when you say, oh, I work at the university of blah, 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 blah. People are like, you must be smart. You must know what you're doing, right? Like it comes with all of these things. And so I had worked in a counseling center for four years. And I really loved the work. And then I started to feel kind of bored and like I needed to sort of expand beyond it. And I thought, hey, like, let's go for this more, you know, faculty appointment, kind of more of that administrative role. And so I got a role that I thought was going to be like dream job, right? Like it had a faculty appointment. It was an administrative leadership role, like, and I was doing clinical work. So I was like, this is just perfect, right? I hated it. Like, I, I hated it. And it was like, okay, at first. And then it was just like, every Monday, I was like, no, you know, like Sunday scaries, Monday, what, I don't know what they call Mondays, but like, it was not great. Um, And so I started to realize like, this actually ain't it for me, right? Like, this is actually not how I want to make an impact on the world. I'm not really using, I was doing a good enough job, but I wasn't really using my gifts. Like, I wasn't really doing what I wanted to do in the world. And what I found is when I was doing things on the side, like speaking, things like that, like that lit me up. But then my main job, I was like frustrated, irritated, you know, like resentful, like it just all the things that you don't want to feel. So I, you know, started to be like, okay, like maybe I got to make a transition. But I was like, well, I got student loans (laughs) and I need that student loan repayment. So it's going to be five years. (laughs) That was like the initial like five years. And I have a really good friend who's also a clinical psychologist who was like, I think you need to think about the mental and emotional cost of staying. And I was like, ooh, ooh, that's true. She was like, you know, that it's not all about the money and like loan forgiveness. And so then I started to think like, maybe, you know, like maybe I could leave sooner. Like, what would that look like? What could that be like? Could I pay down my loans on my own? And like, I have a significant portion of loans. Like, it's not $20,000, like it's a lot, right? Like yeah. we're, we're close to, you know, six figures, close. Thankfully not there, but close. Yeah. So, you know, I started to play with that. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll leave in two years. And then I had to work through a lot of guilt because it was, you know, people depend on me and rely on me and, you know, what's going to happen if I leave and all of those things. And then I kept getting frustrated. Every time I got frustrated, sometimes angry, I was like, two years, one year. Nine months, six months, which was like, I, and then eventually it was like, I got to go. I, I got to go. And while I was sort of getting ready to go, I was like, I took um, Digital Course Academy with Amy Porterfield. So I was creating a course, an online course. And I was sort of 
figuring out how I was going to generate money outside of this academic framework. Um, and eventually sort of actually almost two years exactly from now, started my own private practice, had this online course program, which has evolved into my coaching program and was doing speaking. And it was a big leap, but it's the best professional decision I have ever made. I am happier. I am more at peace. I work less. I make more money. Like it was a bet on myself that has um, continued to pay off. So how long was that overlap where you were like doing stuff on the side, but still working at the university? That's a good question. I mean, I kind of shouldn't tell like, like, let's keep this. Thing. No, it's fine. I don't really care. I don't really care. Um, I was, it was, honestly, it was probably about a year because, and it wasn't like, like I basically, because I was doing speaking on the side and so it would be like a gig here, a gig there. Like it wasn't like every month or every week I was getting something, but it was part of what happened is I got a really big speaking gig for like for a major company. And it just, and it was so interesting because I like, was like, okay, I'm going to charge them this amount. And they literally came back and they were like, okay, this is great, but we're going to pay you 5,000 more than what you asked for. Wow. And so it was just like open my mind to the possibility of like, oh, and I like came back from that opportunity feeling energized and excited. And I like just loved it. And so I came that like opened my eyes to like, oh, I can do what I love and make a lot of money and help people. Like that actually is possible. So that sort of like opened my eyes to like, actually I could create something beyond these academic structures, beyond this like needing this affiliation. And that then I sort of like spent a year like, the, you know, doing speaking gigs, also developing a course, like preparing myself to get ready for that leap. And I also gave like a four month, like I gave four months notice, partly because I felt guilty, partly because I just wanted to leave in an honorable way that like didn't just like peace out good luck, but like there were programs and things that I cared about that I wanted to have some continuity. And so I like, I was like, I'm going to give them a lot of time to figure out who's going to replace me so that that transition can be you talked about the financial piece obviously being a big barrier with the amount of loans that you had, and you probably were making a decent salary at that position and not knowing exactly, hey, going off on my own, what is that going to look like? So that all makes complete sense and, and would be a huge barrier and one that a lot of people obviously deal with. What did you have other barriers? And I'll be honest, the reason that this question came to mind is you mentioned your parents both being in academia. And so I was a little bit curious how they felt about, you know, you leaving? Such a good question. So I, so my parents are interesting. They're wonderful people and interesting as like most parents are, right? Maybe not all parents are wonderful, but whatever. They're all interesting. When they don't like what I do, they don't really say anything. So they're sort of hands-off parents, right? So I got some questions, mostly from my dad, kind of like, are you sure you want to do this? You know, it's not as stable. It's not as predictable, sort of like, which to me and my dad really, he's not heavy. He's never going to be like, absolutely don't do this. Right. But he is going to be like, hmm, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And I think that a big, it, so that was one piece, right? Like there was sort of a a little bit of questioning. And then this interesting thing happened that for me at the time felt hurtful, which was when I left, like the week I left and then was transitioning to working on my own, like I didn't hear from them. Like my, my husband's mom sent me like a card and like called me and was like, I'm so proud of you. Like, this is so great. Blah, 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 blah. And I like called my parents. They didn't call me back. I like literally had to be like, I have not heard like this is a big deal. And I've not heard from you. And I think that part of it was that I was leaving their world where like up until then, they knew more than me in the world that I was operating. Right. Like they knew the dynamics of faculty appointments and navigating academia. 
They knew that world. And that's a big privilege that I had when I was operating in it, that I had parents who like really knew academia that could support me. And when I took the leap into entrepreneurship, it was like I was moving out of their realm. And I think they just kind of didn't even know what to do with it. So I think there was sort of like that interpersonal thing that happened, which it's not that I felt unsupported, but I didn't feel fully supported. And there was also like an intra internal, intrapersonal internal thing happening for me, which was like, wow, like I have almost exactly followed the pathway of my parents. And I am now for the first time not doing like this is my first time not only leaving academia, but also leaving their world and what they know and and following their path, which has been very successful for them. And so I do think that was an element because I hated my last job so much, like because it was so miserable for me, like I couldn't stay. Do you know what I mean? Like I couldn't, it was like not workable <laughs> to stay because it was just grating me. So those certainly were things that I kind of had to work through and think through. But, and I also say this, which is I needed my last job to be as frustrating as it was for me because that prompted me to take this leap. If I had been in the previous job, which was very comfortable I was really supported. I was really affirmed. I was really seen. I was a little bored, but like kind of got to do what I wanted. Nobody was telling me what to do, which was like a thing. And I was like, oh, I don't like people telling me what to do. But you know what I mean? I was like, I wouldn't have, I don't know that I would have taken the leap. And so I, I needed a job that was really uncomfortable to get me out of my comfort zone and be willing to be courageous and do what I meant to do. It's interesting how it does take an event like that some t a lot of the time, to be honest, to to get someone from where they just are to where they really want to be. Like I've talked to a lot of people recently where the pandemic was that for them, whether they lost their job or, you know, they just had so much more time on their hands and the world was a little bit in disarray. And it it really showed them, hey, OK, this is a passion that I want to work on. And now I'm a professional photographer, you know, who's making tons of money or or whatever. So. It's interesting. And for you, it wasn't the pandemic. It was something, a job that you really didn't like, but it, it takes something like that a lot of the time, which is interesting. But back to your parents. So how is that relationship now? Are they supportive now? I would say generally, yes. Like my mom has started asking more about like, oh, like how did that launch go? Or how's it going? Right? Like, so there's a little bit more like interest and not I take interest as like, so like that's a form of support. My dad, not so much. Like, I think he's still like, I don't, I don't think he's like, oh, she's ruining her life. Like, I don't have that, but there's not like a interest and a curiosity in what I'm doing. Right. So, you know, I would say sort of like neutral to slightly positive. It's where I'm at. Um, and I think that's sort of the benefit. Like, I think the things that have definitely supported me in taking the leap are being married to my husband, who's incredibly supportive. Like, he really saw how miserable I was and was like, this is not helpful to you. It's not helpful to me. Like, let's get you out of here. Right. Like, him having a W 2 job with health insurance is huge. Right. Because it, it lets up the pressure on me. Um, and so I think even though my parents are not like, cheering me on they're they're not tearing me down and I know that I do have the support of my husband who's incredibly encouraging and so that you know is really helpful yeah well and like you said you know you went from a profession that was exactly basically what they've always known and what they do themselves to something that probably seems very foreign um, when it even comes from social media presence and all of that and so there's obviously that big piece of things as well but exactly. you, you mentioned earlier about a friend who during that time when you said, OK, I'm going to put this plan together, but it's going to be a five year plan. And they were you know, they mentioned, hey, have you considered the toll that it, that's going to take on your mental health? How seriously did you take that at the time? And like, had you thought about that before or your friend telling you that was that like a very eye opening moment? Yeah, I hadn't thought about it before. It was very eye opening. Like it just like hit me like this friend has a tendency to do that like one time we're at brunch and I'm like crying 
<laughs> like, what? <laughs> Why is this happening? But, it, you know, it's like, it was just like, oh, yeah. Like, yes, there are the finances. But it it sort of, like, helped me to more clearly acknowledge the mental and emotional toll that I that it was taking on me because I think that I had the habit, as I think many women do, certainly black women do, of like, just deal with it. Just keep pushing. Just deal with it. Just tolerate it. Like, just, you know what I mean? Like, not fully acknowledging, like, this is not healthy. Like, this does not feel good. <laughs> like, I don't want to keep doing this. Right. And so when she said that, it was like, oh, there are other considerations, right? Like, Student loans and loan repayment is one consideration, and it's a significant consideration because it's not a small amount of money, and it's only one, right? And it's like, could, you know, so it just opened me up to be like, one, let me acknowledge how I feel, which is not great, and two, let me start actually thinking of more possibilities, right? Like, I thought of this, the only way to get my student loans paid off is student loan repayment, but like, what if I earn more money and then I pay off more, right? Like, what if there are other possibilities? And so it just opened me up in a way that was really important that I I don't know that I would have gotten there on my own. I, I That question that she asked was really powerful. It almost feels so basic, those first two steps you talked about with acknowledging how you feel and then starting to formulate action steps you you or like possibilities that you could take to put you in a different direction yet that's so hard to do you know there's so many people including myself at times where one of my tendencies is avoiding and I'm just gonna avoid those feelings because at the time that feels easier but we all know that down the line that's not the easier solution in reality um but it's hard to do right right and that I mean I think that's also why like in my work and on my podcast like People will probably get tired of me talking about like self-compassion and like feel your feelings. That's why I think it's helpful to have those sorts of tools. Like one sort of like, what is your process of self-reflection and being honest? You have friends who helped you to be honest with yourself, like my friend did. And then do you also have practices like, you know, I think self-compassion is, you know, my favorite, but there are others like movement and things that actually help you process the emotions so you don't feel like, if I let myself feel it, I'm going to be totally overwhelmed and stuck and sucked into it. But you feel like, okay, like when I wade into these feelings, I actually have tools and practices that help me move through them in a healthy way. So I'm not going to be stuck or overwhelmed, but I can use them as wisdom and guidance to make decisions about what I need to do next on my journey. I mean, you hit on such an amazing point there, because I do think that that's such a big fear for a lot of people. And in that at some point in their life, probably earlier on, maybe it was teenage years or early 20s, where before they had the ability to really know how to handle those emotions, if they had a traumatic event happen or something happened, they maybe didn't handle it in a very productive way or didn't know how to handle it. And so, yeah, resorted to, you know, in extreme instances, alcohol or drugs or something along those lines. And so then it's easy to avoid after that, right? And the reality is, though, like you mentioned, if you have those skills or coping mechanisms and all that, then um, it becomes it becomes productive in that in that way to be able to feel and then use those skills to 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 handle it. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I like to encourage people like give yourself grace because most people did not learn how to deal with emotions health in a healthy way, like. Most of our parents don't deal with emotions in a healthy way. And you probably like often what we see is either explosive reactivity around emotions. Right. So like getting violent, overwhelming, crying, like all of these things. And we think, I don't want to do that. Like, so we're not going to get in touch with those emotions. Or we see avoidance and avoidance can look like a lot of things like what you said, substance abuse, um, you know, shopping, eating, overexercising. Restricting eating, um, cutting, right? Like it can look like so many things. And so often, you know, we just don't have any models or anybody who was talking to us about it. And so I encourage people to like give yourself grace, right? And then any moment is a time that you can choose something different um, and you can do something different and know that it's probably going to be hard um, and it's going to be worth it because it's going to actually help you get to the life you want to live. 
and this is such a beauty of social media. I know there's a lot of negative pieces of social media too, but to have people like you who, uh, you know, I can follow, who someone else can follow and is a role model for um, different ways you can handle those emotions, you know, that wasn't around not very long ago. So that is a, a big beauty of social media, I think. I, I've heard you mention your self-worth journey a few times. So I was hoping we could hear a little bit more about that. And, and I'm guessing some of what you talked about already plays into that. Um, but how you personally have gotten to a point where you feel aligned in your life and where you're able to practice unconditional self-worth for yourself. Yeah. So, you know, I started as a kid feeling unworthy, like really feeling like there was something wrong with me. Um, and my self-worth journey sort of took a number of iterations, right? So I started feeling like, okay, well, if I'm the perfect friend, then maybe I'll always be included. Being excluded was a big sort of trigger point for me. It can still sort of like be something that triggers me. Um, so maybe I'll be the perfect friend. And then it was like, oh, I'll be the perfect student. And then it's like, oh, I'll be the perfect girlfriend, like find a party, right? Like, so it was like thing after thing after thing after thing. And it and it reached ahead for me when I was, you know, defending my dissertation because that was a thing. It was like, okay, like if I just get this, right, like it should be fine, right? Like you get your PhD, you get those three letters and everything magically changes, right? And I knew immediately, like I walked out of my dissertation defense. They told me I had passed. They weren't very kind about it. Speaking of academia, like. Uh, <laughs> not so fun. Like it was not like a amazing idea. It was like, well, these are all the problems, but you passed. So it was like, okay, oh, thanks. Geez. Um, thanks. I worked on this for two years. <laughs> um, so anyway, I walked out and immediately I knew like that didn't work. I don't feel good. And I started sobbing. Like I was in my department sobbing. And so I had already been in therapy at that point because I had sort of like stressed myself into lots of anxiety earlier in my PhD career. Um, and the therapy helped. And I also just like started like listening to all these spiritual teachings and doing all this stuff to just try to figure it out. Right. And I didn't even know people weren't talking about self-worth. But like that wasn't a conversation that was happening. So I didn't even totally know what I was looking for. But I knew that how I felt didn't feel good. And through the process of learning meditation and mindfulness practices and practicing them, right, and learning to ground myself through the process of learning self-compassion and offering it to my clients and then actually using it on myself and being kind to myself and encouraging, right, through learning to really love myself and like myself and accept myself, like all of these things through turning to my own intuition and letting that be my guide, right? That all helped me to connect to the fact that I am unconditionally worthy. And this was just emphasized when I was doing therapy with students at like the number three university in the U.S., right? And so I was seeing these super high achieving students who were struggling with feeling worthy, struggling with suicidality, anxiety, depression. And so it like really crystallized that my experience was not singular, Right. And that my experience was something that so many people also struggle with. And so that's where I started to sort of put together my experience, my clinical training and experience and share it with people, because um, I know that I'm not the only one who struggles with these things, who struggles with feeling worthy. And I also know that life feels so much better now that I know I'm worthy. Is it perfect? No. Like, Yes, I feel anxious sometimes, but am I way, way, way less anxious than I used to be? Yes, right? Like, yes, I feel stressed sometimes. Do I have the tools and the strategies to be kind and compassionate with myself instead of beating myself up when I'm stressed? Yes, right? Like, these are the things, these are the tools that I live by. And I like to help people understand that, you know, embracing your unconditional self-worth is about shifting the way you see yourself and you treat yourself. So it's about a different way of living right, that allows you to embrace the fullness of life and also thrive and feel good from the inside out. It had to have been just, I guess, it seems like it had to have been so obvious when you were working at that, you know, top three university, top-notch university, these very, very smart young adults who have just been most likely high-achieving their entire lives. 
that our worthiness is not found in external factors when you're dealing with those students and, and they're feeling like they're not worthy, you know? Yeah, it had to have just been so obvious. And it, it's crazy that it is so obvious, yet something that is so hard to, you know, deal with for, for a lot of people. Right. I mean, we live in a world that says you'll be worthy if you get the degree, if you get the job, if you have the money, if you look this way, if you dress this way, if you act this way. Like, those messages are constant, right? And sometimes they're playing in the background and sometimes a family member says it or sometimes, right? Like, but we're told. And then for like high achievers, it's like you were probably affirmed for your achievements from the time that you were maybe five, right? Like, oh, you're so smart. Oh, you're so smart. You figured that out really quick. Like all of those things. And so it's no wonder that between those messages, the way you were affirmed, and also the framework that if you get a degree, then you'll get a job, then you'll be free, you'll be worthy, you'll be free, you'll be taken care of, that so much pressure gets put on, you know, these students to achieve that. And often what we found is like, there was a very, like, especially the university I was in, like, it's like there was a disconnect from any part of themselves that was beyond their intellect. Right. So often what we are doing is like, let's get in your body. Right. Like, let's connect to other parts of you. Right. Like, you're not just a brain. You're a whole human and you have feelings and you should have relationships and all of those things. And that's actually part of what helps people on their self-worth journey is can you move beyond a singular identity or thing about yourself? Right. Because if you have one thing and that's make or break and it's breaking, right? Like it's not working. Then you feel unworthy. If you feel like I'm a whole human and I may make a mistake in that area or fail in that area, but I'm still a whole person, it's easier to navigate through life. This is just I'm kind of a practical thinker. So this is a practical question. But that work that you did with students, did you feel like it helped? And also, I guess I'm asking, like, do you feel like it was the first time they were hearing that? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> For many of them. Yes. Yes. And I do think it helped. I mean, one of the things I loved about being in college counseling is that like that those like late teen, early 20, early mid 20s, because we saw grad students too. phase is like such a great time to be working on mental health and wellness because it's often before things have like solidified, right? Like, oh, I've had this issue for 10 years and I haven't done anything about it for 10 years. And it's like, OK, like dig in, like. This is, you know, it's like, and there's still, it's still possible to change. So if you're listening and it's been 10 years for you, don't worry. If it's been 20, I had a client who was in his 80s and made changes. So just know that it's never too late. And there's sort of this special developmental period where students are sort of learning and growing and evolving. And I do think just more open um, that happens. And so, yeah, I think a lot of them, it was the first time that they heard things like this. And it was also exciting because, they were making changes, right? Like they were shifting how they saw themselves. They were trying different things. And for some of them, you know, they're going to take some things and then they weren't going to be ready for the rest of it. And they'd return to therapy or whatever in the future. And it did help, right? Like when they were able to integrate some of the things that we talked about in their lives, they saw shifts. I believe that that helped them so much, I'm sure. And I guess the reason I asked that in the first place was, it's crazy to me that people aren't hearing that message even earlier as well, right? And, you know, that's a whole nother probably topic and, and problem that we aren't going to be able to solve in this conversation today. But, you know, it would be awesome if those very high achieving students or or maybe it's athletics, right? I worked I worked in college athletics for a long time and also was a college athlete myself. If those, you know, students as well were, were having those conversations and, and getting that messaging early where it's you know, where it's like, hey, you're not just an athlete. Your self-worth isn't just um, reliant on how you perform in a, in a game or a match or whatever. There's a lot more to it and not having to go through four years of college athletics or four years of a high academic institution or whatever it is and, and go through so much, so many highs and lows, you know, so much trauma even. And then all of a sudden they realize, oh, wait, it's not just about this, right? Um, I mean, maybe part of it is you do have to go through it, but I do think somehow having messaging earlier that's saying that would be pretty awesome. 
I totally agree. And I think, I mean, the thing that comes to mind is, you know, like seeing these coaches who are like, oh, we're not getting kicked out of the game. And it's like, okay, so the coach also feels that their worthiness is dependent on whether or not they win the game, right? So it's like, it starts with the adults in the room, right? And and the more adults, whether parents or coaches or teachers or instructors or mentors or whoever, the more adults can claim their worthiness, the more they are able to hold space and affirm the worthiness of the young people in their lives beyond whatever, right? So, I mean, you see this like, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it way more than I have. It's like the parents at the like kids soccer game and they're five-year-olds and they're like, it's just like, whoa, like so your ridiculous. child's performance on this center field is not a measure of your worth or their worth, right? But like people get so caught up and it's like, well, what is the child going to learn from that? Their parent is going crazy because a ref's missed a whatever in a like five-year-old's game like what are they going to get from that it is absolutely important that i do this perfectly because my parent is going to be so disappointed and upset with me they're going to be in a bad mood for the rest of the night blah 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 blah. if i don't get this right if we don't get this right right like that is the messaging so the more any person who's listening can claim their word the better able, not only will it make your life better, it's going to make everyone in your circles life better, especially if you have children or young people that you are mentoring, that you are involved with, because you can then, one, give them permission to be imperfect and know they're still worthy. And you can also hold space for them to be whole human beings. For sure. It's such a trickle down effect or snowball effect or however you want to call it. And yeah, I'm going to be honest, I, I had a really hard time with that when I was in, in college coaching because I think I did have a good understanding of this. Was I perfect all the time? No, but I, I did really try and find the balance between pushing my athletes to be, you know, the best athlete that they could be, the best teammate that they could be and, and all of that on the sports side of things, but then also reminding them you're a human being and there's a lot beyond just playing basketball and you know, you're just going to play basketball for four more years and then you're going to go off and do all these other things. And even if you're not getting any playing time in a game, that doesn't mean that you're a horrible person or that you haven't achieved anything. And, but it was so hard. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I had a young woman, 19 years old, come into my office bawling, crying because they weren't getting the playing time they want. And and where did that stem from, right? Did that come from pressure from parents? Did that does that just come from sports in general? But that was definitely I did the best I could, I think, but it definitely took a toll on me having to have those conversations. Yeah. I mean, and I think to me what comes up is like, can we learn to make space for that disappointment? Right? Because that's real. Like it's okay to be disappointed that you're not gonna play. And if we can sort of help people tune into, okay, well, why is it important to play? Kind of like what you're saying. Is it because it feels like that makes you worthy? Is it because you're worried that you're letting your parents down? Is it because blah, 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 whatever? Because honestly, if it's, I just love playing basketball, you're practicing all the time, (laughs) right? Like, guess what you're doing all the time? You're playing Mm -hmm. basketball. And yes, being on the court, I'm, I'm not a basketball player. Right. But being on the court is a different level of energy. Like I can understand the like, I want to be out there in the energy, in the moment. Right. Like that I get. And like if it is really just about a love for the game, you're probably going to get a little bit less of the baggage. You may still feel disappointed. You may still feel like you want to be put in. Right. And be off the bench. And the baggage is usually because I feel unworthy. I'm disappointing people. What does this mean for my future? Da, 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 da. It means I'm not good enough, right? It's because of all of those things more than just the like, it would be really fun to get out there and play, mm-hmm. right? Because you can play. If you want to play, play. You may not always play in the prime playoff game, but you can play. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of where we can dig into why am I so upset about this? And what narratives and meaning am I putting on playing right and for what it could be whatever in your life right like playing basketball as a metaphor for you know 
being in a relationship or, you know, getting this job or doing blah, 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 blah. But it's like, well, why is it really disappointing? Is it because I believe these false narratives about it? Or is it because I think this keeps me from doing something I truly love? And then it's, does it really keep you from it? Or can you do it now in a different way? We're talking about this a little bit now, and you mentioned it earlier, but this concept of of thriving. And I spoke about this in one of my recent podcast episodes, and I would love to expand on it a bit more. But I spoke about thriving versus finding peace in our lives. And I want to know if you think we can do both. Like, is is there an appropriate time for both? Are there times when we should be focusing on finding peace versus thriving? Just to give you a bit of an example, I mean, I'll use myself. I have a lot going on, right? Like most people do in this world, right? We have our full-time job. I have side projects. I have relationships. I have family, dogs, you know. I'm sure people have way more going on than I do, but I feel like I have a lot going on on, on my day-to-day. And it's this constant battle between trying to be my best at all those things, trying to build a business, trying to do really good at my my full-time job, trying to eat healthy, you know, I could go on and on, versus like making sure I'm taking care of myself, making sure my mental health is good, making sure I'm, you know, trying to keep my stress down so cortisol levels aren't rising, making sure I'm getting enough sleep, you know. And so, yeah, I'm in this always feel like I'm in a little bit of a constant battle between thriving and and finding peace. And yeah, just curious, curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I think it's a great question. So what you described as thriving, I would actually call striving. I think that what you described is striving, striving to be the best you can be at work, in your relationships, with your blah, 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 right? Like it's it's sort of like working, pushing, moving, right? Like striving, striving, right? I actually think that thriving includes peace, wellness, contentment, joy, enjoyment, right? Like that's for me, that's how I define thriving, mm-hmm. right? And And thriving may include striving, but it striving doesn't necessarily include thriving, right? Like we could strive yeah. and not thrive. Um, and I think actually a lot of people in this country are striving and they're not thriving, right? Like mm-hmm. they're striving, they're working, they're working, they're pushing, they're doing all the things. And this is where often, like when I talk about self-care, people are getting into this challenge of like, self-care feels like a burden because it's like in this striving, achieving framework. Like, I got to do all the things. I got to eat right. I got to do that. I got to meditate. Right? Like, you, I don't know if you've seen those. There's like these social media posts that go around. It's like, if you're doing, if you're like drinking the water and working out and doing all the, like you're about to fall apart. And that's because it's like, it's not about the experience of taking care of yourself. It's about check the box, check the box. Did you do all the things? Did you remember to do all the things? Right. And that is striving and striving often leads to stress. I think it's really important. I'm trying to think about how I want to say this. It's really important to remember that the way you take care of yourself is actually supportive of the things that you want to be successful in, right? So often in the framework, and that's sort of how you described it, Getting enough sleep takes away from me doing a good job, Uh, taking care of myself, right? Like it's sort of like a takeaway framework. Like if I don't, if I don't, if I do this, I can't do this, right? Like I have 50, 60, 70, 80 hours of work I need to do. And so if I sleep more, rest more, meditate more, that's going to take away, right? The truth is that self-care, when it's really self-care, not checkbox self-care, but like really giving you restoration, nourishment, rest. It's additive. When you get the eight hours of sleep, you work better the next day. You're more efficient. You're more effective. When you get the eight hours of sleep, you communicate better with your partner. When you eat, you're not angry. And you're a more pleasant human being and you show up as the person you want to be. When you meditate, your mind is calmer and clearer so you can work more efficiently and effectively. And so that's the challenge, right, in this sort of capitalistic framework that we have, which is do more, do more, do more, do more, work, 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 work. Our minds take that and say, don't take breaks, that's taking away. If you're not busy, if you're not doing, you're taking away. When the truth is that when you rest and when you take time for yourself to take care of yourself, that's when you actually feel better and you actually work better and you work more effectively. And to me, that combination is thriving. 
Yeah. So you get enough sleep and instead of having to work a 80 hour work week, it actually becomes a 60 hour work week because you're that much more efficient. Right. And I you know, like test it out, right? Listeners, test it out with yourself. How many of you have stayed up finishing some project? And so if you're a night owl, you're a night owl. And so you probably work better at night. So it's not really, it's not the same. But let's sit for night owls, imagine getting up at six or 5 a.m. to do some work, right? Like when you, it's not your on time. But if you're not a night owl, like you stay up until midnight, right? Like working and it takes you three hours to do something that would take you one hour if you were rested and you were doing it during your prime waking hours. I, I mean, I certainly have done that in the past. I think all of us have done that, right? And it's like, well, wouldn't it have been better to go to bed at 10 and wake up at 6 and have 8 hours and then just like get it done in an hour and you'd feel less frustrated and irritable and all those things? But the problem is a culture of busyness that says you're worthy because you're busy, right? And then we like to complain about like, oh my God, I'm so busy, right? That culture says keep working. It looks better. It looks better if you can say I haven't, you haven't slept. That means you're working harder. That must mean you're more valuable. That must mean you're contributing more. Meanwhile, you don't feel good. You don't feel great about the work output that you're doing, right? The product. And no, you're not thriving, right? And so what I like to imagine and what I try to live is that I, I thrive because I rest and I sleep and I meditate and I exercise and I try to have fun and I work. And I get my work done and I do work that aligns with me, that lights me up. And some, there's, sometimes there's work I don't want to do, right? Like write an SOP for my business. Not a fan, <laughs> right? But like, and that's what thriving looks like for me. And the other thing I will say is I think striving really gets going when we don't feel worthy and when we feel like we have to do all the things to be worthy. And when you can be grounded in your unconditional self-worth, then you work but you don't overwork, right? And work is not make or break for your worth. So it's easier to rest and it's easier to take care of yourself because work is something that you get to do, something that, you know, like you get to share your gifts versus something that you have to do to prove that you're worthy. You gave me new perspective on that, striving versus thriving. So I appreciate that selfishly and I'm just going to move on, but I really love that. So yeah. thank you. Also, side note, my dissertation focused on thriving. So Okay, so I that really was a good thriving. question then. <laughs> okay, well, I have one more kind of big question for you, and then we'll go into our rapid fire round to, to finish off. Okay, so let's say that you go through the process with someone. Maybe there's it's someone that is in your group coaching program or someone you're working with one-on-one to help them find their unconditional self-worth. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of works, or at least you, you help them, you start giving them the tools, they start feeling better, they start feeling more worthy. But then, you know, I have also seen you say you may still hurt after you heal, right? So they might go through this process and, again, they've made tons of progress. They feel more worthy, but there still may be hurt. This feels very tough, right? When I hear, when I hear you say this, and I know there's a lot of truth to it, it feels really tough. Like you go through all the work, you know, and, but, but then you're saying, which is hard to do, but then you're saying, hey, you may still hurt. So how do we come to terms with this and how do we move forward knowing that even after we've healed, it's, it's not always going to be perfect all the time. You may still have times where it hurts. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. This, that post I, I did like really resonate and I was like, oh, okay. This is striking a nerve with people across the internet. <laughs> so, you know, I think part of what we are trying to do is get out of some of the hard parts of a human experience. And the truth is that there's nothing you can do to get out of the hard parts of being a human, right? Like often what I would talk to my clients about is like, you're not a robot, so you're going to have feelings, right? Like that is just the reality, right? And we have these fantasies that if we are perfect or we make enough money or we look a certain way or maybe even using the self-worth journey as a way out of feelings, that then we will never feel anything. We will always be happy. And the tr that's just not possible, right? The only way you will not feel anything ever again is if you're not alive, right? And so really what the self-worth journey about is about and what healing is about is having the tools to cope with the feelings, 
having the tools to move through your human experience so that you can experience not only like the challenging and move through and process it in a healthy way. And you can also experience the good because the other thing is when you suppress your negative emotions, you also limit your positive emotions. We don't get to suppress one side and also get all the joy, right? And so it's about having the tools. I actually was talking to a friend about this and he shared this example he saw on Facebook or something. And it was basically after you have an injury, you may heal and still you may like have an ankle that's like a little tender and you're a little more careful and it's a little more prone to be hurt. So like, be careful, don't roll that ankle, right? That's how we deal with our physical body. And that's also how our, you know, emotions work, how wounds work emotionally. And it's really about having the tools to show up for yourself when you're having the normal human experience of feeling disappointed or hurt or rejected or whatever it is, right? Allowing yourself to feel that and knowing that that doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It doesn't mean you're not healed. It means you're human. It means you care. And there are tools to help you navigate that. The uh, ankle example just made that make sense to all of my athletes and former athletes, especially basketball players who've rolled their ankles before. But um, yeah, no, there, there's so much truth to that. And it's just hard, right? It's just hard to know that you will go through all of the work, but it's not going to be perfect. But like you said, that's part of being human, right? And there's just always going to be challenges that we that we're facing. Well, this has been awesome. I really, really loved this conversation. Thank you again for for doing this. I wanted to end, if you're up for it, with our rapid fire round. I do this with all the guests that I have on this podcast, where every sure. answer needs to be given in one word to one sentence max, ideally. Um, okay. So you up for it? I'm up for it. Okay. Awesome. So here we go. Number one, what is one thing you are doing right now to help you with your unconditional self-worth? Tuning in to my body and honoring what it needs. What is the hardest part of owning your own business? Having to do operation stuff that I don't like. <laughs> I get that. I get that. Number three, if you could travel anywhere in the world tomorrow, where would you go? Bali. Ooh. The little huts on the water or yeah. <laughs> I've never been, it. but it looks fabulous. Oh yeah. Anytime <laughs> I see that on social media, I'm like, I, it needs to happen at some point. <laughs> um, number four, what's one thing you feel like you should be doing right now, but you're not making more time for fun and mm. play. Yes. Always. Number five, what's the best advice you have ever received? Listen to your intuition. That's an important one. That's for sure. All right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Gooden, for being here with us. If you want to learn more about Dr. Adia Gooden and her group coaching program, you can visit her website at www.unconditionallyworthy.com slash program and her Instagram page at Dr. Adia Gooden. So before I give my last goodbye, like I always do on this podcast, I just wanted to say one more time, Thank you so much for being here today um, and being a guest on the Making Changes, Breaking Barriers podcast. I, I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. This was fun. I'm glad to have been on the podcast and it was great to have this conversation with you, Christina. All right. Well, to all my listeners, changing your path will not be easy. It will be challenging. And I'll say that over and over again, but it will be worth it. So do a self-check today. Are you on your path up your mountain? And if not, what path are you on? 